Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven gold lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you were fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, yet this you have, you, uh, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Amen. You can be seated. That's my dad. Thanks, Dad. He's up here visiting for Lois's birthday, so I put him to work. Amen. Hey, Let's pray together. Father, it's a blessing uh, to be able to come before uh, your word and to come before your throne and to just plead, God, that we need you. God, every single day, God, we need you. God, we, we want to lay uh, our hearts before you even now and humbly ask uh, that you would speak into us and give us life. Father, we we look uh, to your word, to this word written to the church in Ephesus and to all the churches afterwards, uh, that, that you, you spoke very strong words. And so, God, we, we pray that we would receive them, that we would listen, we would heed your word. We would not go about uh, our lives oblivious to you, oblivious to the work uh, that you call us to, that we would not neglect you, that we would not... Um, turn our backs on you or grow cold toward you. But God, we humbly plead that your spirit would so quicken our hearts today that we, we wouldn't be able to deny your work and that our lives would be transformed as we come in contact with you day in and day out. And even now, as we open your word, in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. In 1964, a man by the name of Phil Knight, along with a track coach from the University of Oregon, uh, named Bill Bowerman. They founded a, a company called Blue Ribbon Sports. And this company mainly sold uh, shoes that they got from a, a company in Japan uh, that are ASICs, those ASIC tennis shoes. So their, their main job was selling ASICs tennis shoes. Well, uh, a few years into their business, 1971, they designed and made their own shoe. And somewhere along in that process, they felt like blue ribbon sports wouldn't like fit well, I guess, on the side of a shoe or something. So they needed to, to rebrand and kind of come up with a new name for this line, their own line of shoe. And so they kicked around a, a handful of different options. Uh, one of the main guys really liked Dimension 6. They, for some reason, that was his thing. Another person uh, liked how the Italian company uh, had, had used an, an animal, Puma. And so they started along those lines. They, they thought about a uh, 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 it's called a peregrine falcon. It's like one of the fastest animals. They thought about calling them peregrines or, or um, uh, bingle, like the tiger. They had a bunch of different ideas going on. They, they couldn't really settle on one, but there was a deadline quickly approaching. 
One of the first employees uh, of, the, of the company's name was Jeff Johnson. And even though the company was based in Oregon, uh, he was out in, on the East Coast in Massachusetts at the time they were running up on this deadline. And he woke up one morning at 7 a.m. Uh, there in Massachusetts with the idea. He just knew it, like this was going to be it. The problem is it was 4 a.m. In, in Oregon, and it was the day of the deadline, the day that the, 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 the name had to be submitted to the company. They were going to be printing it on the shoeboxes that day. So 9 a.m. Pacific time, the decision has to be made. 7 a.m. Eastern time, he knows. But the problem is it's 4 a.m., so he's got to sit and wait. So 7 a.m., he calls to the people in Oregon. Uh, he calls the, the president, uh, what was his name? Bob Woodle, Bob Woodle, um, or Woodell. And he calls him at 7 a.m. Pacific time and says, I got it. I got the idea. This is it. And Bob said, okay, uh, what's it? What is it? And Jeff said, Nike. And Bob Woodell said, what's a Nike? <laughs> and so Jeff explained to him, Nike was, in Greek mythology, was the winged goddess of victory. So Bob Woodell said, huh, what else you got? <laughs> he didn't like it. He thought it was just strange and, and funny sounding. And so uh, Jeff you know, tried to pitch it to him, and Bob kind of kicked around for a little while. Well, 9 a.m. is coming close, and so they called the, the CEO, Phil Knight. I think he was on the Dimension 6 side of the argument, whatever. And they just left it up to Phil. Like, all right, 9 a.m. is coming, your, your decision. They ask him after nine. He's like, well, I guess we're going to stick. We'll go with Nike. We'll stick with it for a little while and, you know, maybe we'll change it. Well, that was 50 years ago and sounds like they're going to stick with it at this point, you know, and not uh, not change it up. Uh, it, it worked well. The Greek Greek goddess of victory. That's an appropriate name for an athletic shoe company. Right. I mean, everybody wants to win. I don't know where our competitive nature exactly comes from, but whether it's uh, on a, a, a football field or a track or, or, you know, just you and your brother racing to the car, like an impromptu foot race, we all want to win. In sales and business and life, we are just competitive. And so an athletic shoe company whose name is Victory, man, that's, that's a pretty good name, uh, especially if you get to quote Greek. I mean, how cool is that, right? Um, well, today I uh, want to talk to you about a path to victory, a path to winning, um, because Nike was not only, the, the reason why that, that was the, the, the name for the Greek goddess of victory is that the Greek word Nike is the word used in our Bibles, the Greek word for conquer or overcome, victory. That's the word Nike used uh, throughout the Bible. I think it's used 27 times in the New Testament. Well, it's used eight times in two chapters in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. And I'm sure that the executives of Nike, when they came up uh, with that name and landed on it, they were primarily thinking about the, the way that we all, you know, the way you win, the way you conquer, the way to victory is, is trying your hardest. It is, is putting the time in and the effort in to train, to put on the hours, to train hard, to work hard, to play hard. And if you just do all that with the best shoe apparel, of course, then you can win, right? Just do it. Just do it, right? That's the, that's the slogan for Nike. Just do it. But when it comes to what matters for eternity, when it comes to what is everlasting, your eternal soul, your uh, abundant happiness, where your deepest joy comes from, when it comes to overcoming, conquering, defeating, having victory over life's biggest trials and challenges and temptations, we need something more than just do it. We need something more than just try harder. Seven times in Revelations two and Revelation 2 and 3, we read, to the one who conquers. That's the phrase 
uh, that John writes, as he writes this over and over, seven times he says that. And it's directly from the mouth of Jesus. He is, he is writing this down from Jesus himself. And the last two times, the seventh and eighth time that word conquer shows up in these chapters, is in chapter 3, verse 21. And I think this gives you an idea of what Jesus was trying to communicate. He said, The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on the throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. You see, our shot at victory, our opportunity to overcome the things of this world, our chance at conquering isn't by just doing it. It's by trusting in Jesus because He is the one who has accomplished the ultimate victory. Our victory comes on the heels of His victory. And when we follow Him, him that, He that has already conquered, that's where we will find our victory. Jesus conquered sin and Satan and death and the grave on that first resurrection Sunday. And so we too, by faith in Him, can now overcome whatever obstacles are between us and Him. Nike, conquer, is a, is a pretty good summary, not just of the two chapters here in Revelation 2 and 3, but really of the entire book of Revelation. Uh, it's all, the whole book is about how Jesus conquers. I'll give you just a few other places that's used. Revelation 5, 5 says, the one, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion, the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. Revelation 12, 11 says, And they have conquered him. Speaking of the devil, they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Again, Revelation 17, 14 says, They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. For he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings, and those, who are, those with him are called and chosen and faithful. The book of Revelation and really the whole Bible and all of human history is about how Jesus has conquered. Jesus has conquered. And so we get this, these, uh, these two chapters in Revelation 2 and 3, and they're written to a group of churches, and they're an invitation to, to go with the one who has conquered, to be one who has conquered, to the ones who conquer, over and over again, he says. He writes these, these seven short letters. Really, they're kind of like postcards. You'll see them in your Bible if you're looking at them. They're all broken down, just a handful of, of verses. Each of these seven churches, Jesus speaks to directly. But you'll also notice at the end of each of them, he says, let the churches hear. So he's writing to all of them, even though he's writing individually. And seven, we know from the Bible, is this number of perfection and holiness and the way things are supposed to be. So what he's communicating is, yes, specifically the church of Ephesus, like we'll see today. This is what you need to hear. But by writing to seven, this number of fullness and completeness, he's saying this is for all the churches. This is for everybody, not just, not just Ephesus back then, but for infinity today. All of us are supposed to hear these Seven letters written to these seven churches. And I encourage you at some point to read through all seven of them together, just these two chapters. It wouldn't take you very long. And when you do, you'll notice a pattern. They all start with, to the church at, and then whatever city they're in. And then Jesus, as he's speaking these words, he describes himself. It's coming from him. You know? So he says, he describes himself as the one who's writing this. And then he says, I know, because he knows, the, knows everybody, knows everything. And he tells them, some, most of them, some, some good things they're doing, and most of them, some, some not so good things they're doing. And then he ends each of these letters, all seven of them with the same formula. He says, to the one who conquers. To the one who conquers. That, that challenge, that obstacle that he just addressed specific to their circumstance, to the one who can conquer that by faith and by power that Christ gives, there's an incredible reward for you in heaven.
So that's what we're going to look at through this series, are these seven letters, these seven uh, things written to each of these churches, and how God has invited us to conquer what we face. The first letter written to the church at Ephesus will start with what they're doing right. Chapter 2, verse 2 says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. What a challenge to us today. I'll, I'll word it simply this way. Endure in truth. Endure in truth. Do you want to talk about a victory that's hard to win today? It's a victory to stand on and endure standing in the truth and what really matters. What, I mean, the buzzword of the last few years has been fake news, right? Everybody's trying to tell you what you believe, what you see, what you read is not true, and you don't know what, where, what source to come from, right? Everything, everybody wants to tell you, is we've got to stand on what is actually true, right? We're people of truth. And when it comes to God's Word, the truth of God's Word, and the truth of the person and the work of Jesus Christ Himself, that is under attack like never before, right? I mean, really, ever since the beginning, but... Every generation faces this where people are denying the truth of the gospel. And today, that's especially unpopular because when you describe something as the truth, it sounds exclusive, it sounds arrogant, and people don't like that. It sounds intolerable. It sounds like we're being intolerant of other people. But if we, as we do, as Christians, hold firmly to the fact that there is one truth and the most loving, gracious thing we can do is to winsomely share that truth with other people. That's not being intolerant, it's being loving to share truth. But as Christians, we'll have nothing to share if we don't endure in the truth. If we're wishy-washy, if we're trading things out that we believe and kind of pulling parts out of the Bible, then we have no good news to share with anybody. Amen. And so we're called to endure in the truth. The, the church in Ephesus probably faced a lot of attacks from outside, as we'll, we'll read, but we'll see other places, but... It's interesting to notice where the, the attack on truth comes from in the church of Ephesus. In verse 2, Jesus describes a group who called themselves apostles, and they were not. So the apostles, the true apostles, were the first disciples of Jesus Christ Himself, plus Paul, who wrote much of our New Testament. And they had come, we have that story in Acts chapter 19, of Paul and others coming into the, to the city of Ephesus and proclaiming the gospel there. And that gospel message had, had now carried on for some time. And so now other people have come along after a generation or so, and they too have claimed to be apostles. They're like, hey, we're just like those other guys that were here a little while ago. We are apostles of Jesus too. And the Ephesians received them at least for a little while, but it says that they have tested them and found that they're not telling the truth. They're not, they don't have the same gospel message. And so they're false. What they are teaching did not line up. And he again, Jesus again compliments them in verse 6 saying, This you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So this is a, a specific group of false teachings, and that is a strong word. Like in my family, we try not to use the word hate because it'll go, you know, start, start tearing people down pretty quick. But Jesus is very clear about something we do hate. We hate false teachings. Now notice he didn't say we hate these people. He hates the things they're teaching. What they're teaching is wrong. And it is right to hate evil. It is right to hate what is wrong. And so they are clear about the, these false teachers, their doctrine. It doesn't line up with the gospel message. And the church of Ephesus has rightly rejected the false teachings. We as Christians are called to know what is right and to know what is wrong. 
and to be clear about where we stand. You Today, because of, I don't know if it's just social media or access to so many things, but if you want to find false teachings today, you can find just about anything you want and find somebody that will try to twist a Bible verse to support it, can't you? You see that in every sphere of life, it seems, that everybody is trying to come up with their own things that they are teaching. If you want to find somebody who says, hey, just, just, just believe in this thing and you'll get lots of material wealth, you'll find that as much as you want. If you want to find somebody who will promise you health and wealth, just, just keep believing, they'll, they'll promise you that. Maybe a, another temptation we see, because these are things not just outside the church, but people who claim to be Christians. They, they look like us. They wear cross necklaces. They, they sound like Christians. They talk about the Bible, and yet they're a little off. There's a really uh, a common movement I see today that I'll, I, I'm making this up, my own description of it, but I call it the light and breezy Christianity. You know what I'm talking about? Light and breezy Christianity. The, the, the Christianity that just says, hey, listen, the world is really fast-paced, moving a lot today. Uh, you, we don't have time to like really sit and, and study for a long time. I just need a gospel truth, a, a, a verse to get me through the day, and I'm just going just gonna to keep going, right? And there's absolutely a place for we my schedule. I was describing my day yesterday. My schedule is crazy sometimes. There is a, a healthy place for, for just, hey, grabbing a little Bible while I got a minute, right? Just a little bit of, of, of Christianity, a little bit of Jesus speaking to me today. But there's a, a problem if that's the only thing we ever do, right? And I see this trend in, in the church in so many ways that I think is, is so dangerous. And it's the same, it's the same problem that uh, one of the guys at the, the um, nursery, the, the plant nursery, told me last spring when I was buying azaleas. He said this, he said, hey, be careful that you don't just sprinkle a little bit of water on this azalea every day. Because if you just do a little bit of water every day, you're going to keep just that top layer of topsoil wet, and then the, the, the water's never going to sink down. So what you're going to teach that azalea to do is just to keep real shallow roots right there at the top. And that's okay for a little while, but if you're not doing that every single day, you know what's going to happen? When the drought comes, the drought comes, it doesn't have deep roots to be able to soak up water when things are hard. In Christianity, that's, that's a, I think what I see is a plague that's coming through our, our, our faith to just stay light and breezy. Just stay light and breezy. Nobody wants to soak in it. Nobody wants to sit for 40 minutes through somebody talking about Jesus, right? You come on Easter, but then we'll have some empty seats a couple weeks later, right? Like, Nobody wants to sit and soak in the Word of God. Just give me light and breezy, a few words to go about my day, and then I'm fine. Soak in the Word of God. Dwell in it. Abide in it. Endure in truth. Listen, if all we have is simple, light, shallow Christianity, then when some false teacher comes in and they're quoting Bible, hey, there's a Bible verse. Yesterday I had a Bible verse. I'll just go along with that Bible verse. And before you know it, we're off in a different path. you got to you got to endure in the truth. As true as that was for the people of Ephesus, that is so true for us today. If anything that we've seen over the last year, year and a half, is that we are in an endurance marathon. Like we thought, hey, pandemic, eight weeks, ten weeks, here we are a year later. And things are not getting any easier. We're, things are changing, but it's not get, life's not going to get easier. We are called to endure, and you got to have deep roots if you're going to endure. Because one storm may pass over, but another one's coming eventually. We've got to have deep roots if we're going to endure in the gospel. 
What he says about verse 3, he says, I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Can he say that about you and me? Can he say that over the last year, last year and a half, especially in all the different storms that have blown through our lives? Have we endured patiently and not grown weary? I'm going to tell you, if you've only had shallow roots, if there's anything the last year has done, it has shined a light on us to reveal where we are. If all we have is shallow roots, it's been very, very hard to keep life and nourishment over the last year. But he's commending the church at Ephesus because their roots aren't shallow. They had deep roots and they're abiding in God. And so they are enduring patiently through life's hardest challenge. If you know the truth of the gospel, the truth of Jesus Christ, then you'll be able to endure. You'll be able to endure in truth. And he compliments they are bearing up for his name's sake. They're living for something greater than themselves. Man, doesn't the world want you to live for you? Live for your name, live for your fame, to make yourself famous, to make you look good. And he says, no, the, Ephes- the, the people in Ephesus, the Ephesians, they weren't trying to make everybody think high of the, the Ephesians. They're saying, for, for Jesus' sake, I want to I endure. So that's what the, the, they're doing well. And that is a powerful example for us in, in our day, in 2021, looking all the way back to the church at Ephesus. They endured patiently. They stayed fast, stood fast on the truth. They endured in truth. And at the same time, I, I wonder if even now, you, before you even, maybe before you even looked at that, a, a, a temptation, I think, that can come, kind of the, 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 uh, the weakness that can come with that strength. I think the temptation that we see for all of us. It's a blind spot for the Ephesians, and I could so easily imagine how this happens because I see it in me, and I see it in many times in our world. They're standing for the truth, but in the process, they forgot something. They forgot love. They forgot love. Verse 4, But this I have against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. You hear that? The church at Ephesus have been standing so firm on the truth, which they shouldn't have. Of course they should do that, right? Don't, Don't give that up. But in the process, they forgot love. They abandoned love. So the call to us today is to endure in truth without abandoning love. Endure in truth without abandoning love. Can't you see how this easy this temptation would be for us, especially in our hyper-polarized society, right? We can take a really good and hard stance on something. We know this is truth, right? Maybe even something that, that we can point to the Scripture. This, this isn't a, a, a morally ambiguous thing. Like we can stand firm. We know this is the truth. And yet, it's easy in that moment to then fall into the temptation to lack love as we're expressing that truth. We can be absolutely right about the issue. And yet, the way we express that be totally opposite from the way that Christ intended for us to do it. We can stand in firm in the truth and yet abandon love in the process. Now, don't, don't give up the truth. Don't compromise on the truth. Don't, don't hear me say that. Of course, we don't change the truth. But if our attitude, our words, our heart isn't coming from a place of love, then we are forsaking, we are abandoning the very gospel message we're supposed to be proclaiming. Right? What does Jesus say the very first commandment, first and greatest commandment is? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So if we stand firm on a truth, and yet we're not doing it in a way that loves and honors God, then that doesn't help. And then the second, what's the second commandment? We stand firm on the truth, and yet we don't love our neighbor as ourself? Well, then we have forsaken. We have uh, given up the very thing we're trying to express, 
If we don't love the Lord, then we're twisting it, twisting the, our defense of the truth into something else. 1 Corinthians 13, 2 says, I, If I have faith as to move mountains, but I have not love, I'm nothing. I think the same thing could be said for truth. If in our defense against false teachers or people of a different you know, political opinion or people with a different mask opinion or a different whatever opinion, if, if we are defending our side, and it may be a true side, but if we do it in a way that lacks love, then we've, we've lost the very witness we're supposed to be sharing. Revelation 2 and 3 is a call to conquer, but if we don't conquer with love, then we've conquered for another team. We're not fighting on Jesus' team anymore. We've lost it. If we don't love our neighbor, it's a sign we don't truly love the Lord. Verse 4, he, he doesn't specify the kind of love. It could be a, a love of people and a love of God. I think they, often, they so often go so closely together, right? I think the tone of it, he's probably, probably primarily talking about you lost your love for the Lord. But if you don't love people, then you don't have the love for the Lord. They, they go together. The original word order from the, from the way it's, it's, it's written here is a little bit different. It says literally, uh, your love from at first you have abandoned. I think the emphasis kind of lands there on the end. You have abandoned. You just you gave it up. You no longer show love to the Lord. When Jesus is our first love, it changes everything. He's the one we love at first. And if we, if we uh, have been invited in by Him into the gospel message, then the love is where it starts. And love continues. The church at Ephesus was standing strong in the truth, and yet they were forsaking love. They were dangerously close to having nothing. Uh, preaching in England in 1866, Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, I may know all the doctrines of the Bible, but unless I know Christ, there's not one of them that can save me. That's so good. If I know all, I can know all the doctrines of the Bible, but unless I know Christ, then not one of them can save me. What saves us is that we have faith. We have a personal relationship with Jesus. We love Him. And he loves us. If we forsake that, then we can know all the truth that we want. But if we don't know Jesus, we don't really know Him. We don't have salvation. The Ephesians church was caught up in a, in a temptation here that I think is so easy for us to do. You could go back to those, those uh, chapters in Acts 19, or the one chapter in Acts 19. It tells this incredible story of Paul coming into Ephesus and what happens when he begins to preach the gospel there. You see, Ephesus was a, a big city back in that day. It was a, in, in a big hub of lots of people coming in and out. Plus, they had this incredible temple to their, the Greek and Greek mythology, this Greek goddess uh, Artemis. And so as Paul begins preaching the gospel, people uh, begin to receive Christ, and so they no longer worship at this temple. Well, the people that makes the most upset are the people who build the little idols and statues that people buy when they go to the temple. And so all the guys that are not making as much money start a riot because they're so upset. Not because they believe in this you know, false god all that much, but because they're losing money. So they start a riot, and they get everybody cheering, everybody chanting, and they end up running Paul out of town. But the church stays strong. That was about the mid-50s A.D., so about 20 years after Christ had resurrected. The, the gospel comes to Ephesus. And so you can just imagine what those Christians were like, that first generation of Christians. Man, they are under persecution. They are under fire. And that fire is where their, their faith grows. This church is flourishing. You see Paul as he's talking to the, 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 the Ephesian elders later in Acts chapter 20. And he had spent so much time with them. These were a passionate group of believers and pastors. And he just loves these guys because they're working so hard for the gospel. Well, Revelation chapter 2, written by John. To the best of our knowledge, it's the same apostle John who's 
one of Jesus' inner circle, wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. But this is much later. He has been exiled by the rulers to an island in Patmos. And it's about 90, 92, 95 A.D., So a generation later, after the the gospel had come to Ephesus, from 50 to 90, so we'll call it 40 years or so. So we're on the second generation of that church at this point. And you can imagine what has happened. Those first disciples were so on fire because they were were being persecuted. The people of, uh, of this false religion were trying to break them down. And so they were standing firm on the truth. No, this is the one way. This is the way, the truth, and the life, and they're proclaiming it for everybody. But for some, somehow, when they passed that along to the next generation, that next group of Christians, they held on to the truth, but they forgot the love. They held on to the truth, but they forgot the love. I imagine for many of us, we, we could see how that would happen to us. We can hold on to the truth and yet lose love. Unfortunately, we see, this illustration, see an illustration of this far too often in our world. That same Faithfulness to what's right without love, I think, unfortunately, happens sometimes in marriage. In marriage. Many times, and we, we know that marriages change over the decades, and that's a, a healthy and good thing for, as, as couples get older for that relationship to change, and, and that's good. But unfortunately, sometimes we see this in marriage that as, as couples get older, and, and, and maybe they're, they're Christians or just moral people, they... They, they don't even think about divorce. This, this, this couple, this you know, hypothetical couple I have in my head, they, they don't think about divorce. That, that doesn't make sense. But somewhere between like, you know, the first kid getting potty trained and the last kid graduating high school, the, the, the husband and wife just kind of lost each other. They just kind of lost each other. They, they, they don't want a divorce, but they don't, there's, no, there's no heat. There's no heat anymore. They, they're going to stay faithful. They're going to keep going in their relationship. But... But they don't have love. They don't have that deep, abiding sense of love. As moral people, they endure in the truth. They do the right thing, staying together. But where's the, where's the love? Imagine if, how, how, how painful it would be for a, a husband to say to his wife after decades, you know, hey, I, I'm not leaving you, but I don't love you anymore. Imagine how, how hurtful that would be. And I wonder if that's what the Ephesian church was saying to Jesus. And I wonder if that's a temptation that we may say to Jesus. Hey, I've been in church. I've been around. I'm going to keep coming on Sundays, you know, at least you know, when it doesn't conflict with anything else I want to do. And, and, and I'm going to generally be a, a good moral person. I, I'm not going to go out and you know, make any major problems, stir any major problems. I'm going to stay away from the big sins, you know. But Jesus, I, I'm not going to do anything wrong. I'm not going to leave you, but I don't love you anymore. That's that's what happens if we let our hearts drift and we're not passionately pursuing Christ. It's a dangerous place to be, and Jesus emphasizes just how dangerous that is with a very strong, strong warning. He says in verse 5, if they don't return to loving Him, He says, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And you say, wait, what's a lampstand? What does that have to do with anything? Well, go back one chapter, read Revelation 1. John has a vision of seven lampstands. And then in chapter 1, verse 20, Jesus tells him what it is. He says, the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So a lampstand represents a church. And that's a pretty good metaphor for what a church is, right? We are not the light of the world. Jesus is. 
But we had the high privilege and honor of being a stand for the candle, a candle stand, a candle like a lampstand, right? We get to hold up the light of the world for all to see. We get to display that light. We get to show that light and teach people about the light. That's what the church is. We are a lampstand. We are showing the world the lamp, the light of the world. But this light of the world, he doesn't need us. We, we as, a, as a local body, are not promised tomorrow. Now, don't get me wrong. Christians, individual Christians, are promised that God holds us in our hand. John 10, the Father holds us in our hand. If you know Jesus, God will never take you out of the Father's hand. And the same thing is true for the big C church, the universal church. God, uh, Jesus tells Peter, Matthew 16, I believe it is. He says uh, that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. The church, the big church, will always be. We're the bride of Christ. But an individual local body of, of believers isn't promised tomorrow. Churches uh, close down all the time. There is no guarantee. And he tells the church at Ephesus, if you don't return to loving me, he can come and snatch that lampstand away at no time. This isn't the second coming of Christ. This is a special just, I'm just going to take it away. And we know from church history, and we don't know all the details, but you can go to Ephesus today. There's just a pile of ruins. It's seven miles from the ocean. It used to be on the ocean. There's a river that carried silt seven miles down. It's just out in the middle of nowhere, just a pile of ruins. I don't know if it was because of this or whatever else, but there's not a church there today. God calls us and warns us to be careful that we as Christians can't just go on with a loveless relationship with Christ and expect that to be okay. That is not what it looks like to follow Jesus. He warns them about what they have. He, calls, he says um, uh, in verse 1, he calls himself the one who walks among the lampstands. That's a great comfort to us. He's with us. All right, so he's the one that walks among the churches, but it's also a great caution that he's here. He knows us. He sees us. We can't fake it to the Lord. We can't fake it. He knows who we are. But he makes a great promise of a great reward if things can change. He says in verse 7, To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. You see, if we love him, we get to, have, we get to participate in this special tree that even Adam and Eve got, got blocked from. You see, in Genesis chapter 3, after, the, after they had fallen, Adam and Eve, they removed them from the garden. They put up a guard so they couldn't come back and eat of this one tree because this tree represented being in the presence of God and delighting in Him for eternity. We read about it in Revelation 22.2. It says, uh, speaking of the holy heavenly city, it says, Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, was the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit. And he calls it the paradise of God. The paradise of God. As much as there is a warning about God removing the lampstand, hear this great reward that is for all of those who conquer and come back to a place of love. It's a place of being in paradise with God. It's the same word that Jesus used to the thief on the cross in Luke when, when the one thief says, I, listen, I deserve to be up here. I, I'm being punished for my own, what I've done wrong. But this man, Jesus, he didn't deserve to die. And he says, Jesus, will you remember me when you enter your, to your kingdom? And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. You see, for us as Christians who, who genuinely love the Lord, there's a, a thief saying, I know I cannot save myself. I deserve death. And he says, this guy, this is the Savior. I, I need him. For all of us who come like that to the Savior, he says, you will be with me. We get to be with God in the heavenly city, in a city with a river flowing through it with fruit all to share. 
to be in the presence of God. That's what he gives us. That's what he offers us. If we conquer. If we conquer. So what does that conquer look like? 1 John 4, uh, 5, 4 and 5. So same author, uh, different book. He says, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Jesus died for your sins. He died for your drifting away. He died, he died for your passionless, cold attitude toward God. He died for that. That is a sin to come to God and say, I just am blah about you. It's a sin to feel that way. But He died for it. So you don't have to pay for it. And He resurrected to give you new life, to stir that heart to a passion for the Lord, a fire for the Lord. So how do we conquer? How do we come back to that love? Verse 5, Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. This is what conquering looks like. Conquer and return to love through repentance. Conquer and return to love through repentance. Repentance is the humble admission that I have messed up. It's the humility to say, I don't have it all together. It's the humility to check our own hearts and say, I, I, I want a passion. I want a fire, but I don't have it. It's the repentance, is, is the humbleness, the humility to say, I need Jesus. If you're married, do you remember your first dates? Do you remember engagement? I, I went all out for engagement. I mean, there was like multiple steps. There were letters there was this trellis I built on the roof of a church somewhere. Like, I went all out. You know how Amber felt that day? She felt on top of the world because I was expressing, showing love to her. I was telling her, this is, you're worth this. But you know what happens in marriage? There are seasons we get busy. And you know what we do? We just coast. We just, we just coast. You know how that makes Amber feel when I just coast in marriage? Not so loved. When you first became a Christian, were you on fire for the Lord? When you, when you first trusted in Him, when you, when you, maybe it wasn't the beginning, maybe you've had a different season in life where you're just on fire. What were you doing? What, what were you feeling? What was your life like, your, your relationship with the Lord? Were you on fire for the Lord at some point? He says, remember that. Remember that. Go back to that. Do the works you did at first. There is a, a lie that so many of us believe that love is this feeling. We, we even treat love like an accident. We say, you fall into love. Like I would fall off this stage by accident. You fall into love. Now we can't fully explain love and why it happens and when it does, but I'm going to tell you love is a choice. Love is a decision. Love is something we pursue and we actively engage in it. Love isn't a verb, right? You don't just fall into it. If you just wait till you feel like it, you're going to be waiting for a long time, right? Love is a choice. One pastor, H.B. Charles, I love it. He said, it's easier to act your way to a feeling than to feel your way to an action. I'm going to say it one more time so you catch that. It's easier to act your way to a feeling than to feel your way to an action. In marriage and in your walk with the Lord, if today you don't feel all passionate and loving, then start acting like it and the feeling will follow. Don't wait for the feeling to come and then the action to come. Act like it and then you'll begin to feel it. Be in the Word. Be fervent in prayer. Follow God passionately. Devote the time. Block out it in your schedule, the busy calendar, to be able to sink some deep roots into the Word of God and see if the passion follows. See if the passion follows. Act first and let the feeling follow. And I'll tell you this. Be in church. 
We, we need you, and you need us. We need each other. Maybe you're watching online today, and, and listen, I, I'm not a, a scientist. You and your doctor know your health, and, and we have to figure that out. And we're not, we're not done with the pandemic. I know we're not out of the woods, but we're, we're getting there. The light's at the end of the tunnel, isn't it? We are getting there. And, and I'm not a doctor, but I am a pastor. And as a shepherd, I see the danger. I'm just, I just want to wave this as big as I can. I see the danger of the sheep straying away and being isolated from the flock for too long. Man, this has been a crazy year, but I'm telling you, if you're a sheep that stays out there too long, it's dangerous. I'm not saying this because I'm trying to get something from you. I'm saying this because we want to protect you and we love you and want you to be a part of the flock. If you want to see your relationship with the Lord grow, you've got to be connected to other Christians. We're a flock. We're meant to be together. And as I talk to pastors and read about people all over the world, the, the pandemic has, has shined a bright light and, and, and many sheep have scattered. Many sheep have scattered all over the world. This is the time, as it's coming, to get back together to say we, we're a family and we need one another. Don't let the pandemic be an excuse. Don't let online be a crutch. We want resources to be able to get this out to as many people as possible. But don't let it hinder your walk. Use this time to cling to what matters most. We need each other. Don't abandon your love for the Lord or your love for people. This week I heard a song of repentance by a guy named John Guerra that I think captures, captures repentance very well. He says, My heart you ring and press and flame. I know this grief. You know my ways. My knees I drop. My head you raise. Repentance be my truest praise. Repentance be my truest praise. If you want to conquer sin, if you want to conquer temptation, if you want to conquer the things of this world, then fall on your knees before God. Let Him lift up your head. Let your repentance be your truest praise back to Him. Conquer that way. Not by putting on a pair of fancy shoes with a swoosh. Not by just doing it. But by trusting in Him that died in your place. That He did it for you. That's what conquering looks like. Let's pray. Father, we so, so desperately need you to conquer for us. God, our hearts, we confess, are so far from you so often. God, that we don't trust in you, that we trust in ourselves, we trust in the things of this world. We find our joy, our satisfaction, our pleasures from the things around us, not from you. So God, we pray that, that we would come to you and that you would satisfy our hearts. God, we, we thank you for the ways that we can uh, see what is true and right in your word. And we pray that like the Ephesians, we would endure in that truth. But God, we also see the same temptation that they face, that it's easy for our hearts to be, to be not in it, and for our hearts to be in so many other things. So God, may we endure in truth without abandoning love. God, draw us to repentance today. Draw us to confession today so that we can follow you like you want us to follow you with a fire, with a heat, with a passion for who you are and all that you're doing. God, we love you and we need you every single day. In Christ's name. Mm -hmm.